Good afternoon. My name is Michael, and I serve as one of the elders of the church. It's so good to be with you on this last day of the year, worshiping the Lord together. I'm a father of two young children, so I've been reading lots of children's stories. Uh, One you may be familiar with is the tortoise and the hare. Uh, Tortoise is like a turtle, I guess. I'm not sure if this is correct. A hare, I think, is like a rabbit, and they're racing one day. Obviously, you know that hares are much faster than tortoises, uh, but you'd be surprised if you thought that the hare wins the race. At the end, the big reversal is that the pride of the hare kept it from finishing the race. And that tortoise, sure enough, slowly and steadily won the race. It's really a story for children about pride and trusting too much in your own strength. It's also a story uh, about faithfulness. If you just keep going, you may win the prize at the end of the day. I'm not sure the last time the Lord humbled you and taught you that lesson. For me, I learn it frequently as I go on runs with my wife. And she's much faster than I am. Now, biologically, I know men are stronger and faster than women. Um, But the only way that I beat my wife when we're running is when she's about seven months pregnant. And that's kind of my only hope. Each week, it's another lesson that I am not as strong or as fast as I think I am. You know, the Bible is filled with stories like the story of the tortoise and the hare. These are stories of reversal. Actually, we just finished one last week, the book of Ruth. If you remember, the book began. There's no king, judges rule, and there's a famine and death. Yet at the end, the very last chapter we just heard last week, it's surprising. There's harvest, redemption, a wedding even a royal child, a king. There's another famous story. You may be, maybe you're familiar with it, the story of Joseph. He was sold by his jealous brothers into slavery only to rise in this foreign kingdom and be the one to save his own brothers that sold him. Or another, the story of a little shepherd boy, David, standing up and striking down a giant warrior to save his people. You're probably most familiar with the great reversal of the gospel. In order to rescue us from our sin, God sent his only son to die in our place. Jesus Christ crushed Satan by being crushed for our iniquities. The death of death came about by the death of Christ. It keeps going. The chains of sin, broken as Jesus was broken in our place. And three days later, the humble one exalted to the right hand of the Father. The good news for us is that this story of reversal is actually our story if we too believe in Jesus Christ. Because in Christ we trade God's wrath for God's mercy. We train our sin for salvation. We'll be in the book of Luke today. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. In many ways, Luke is filled with reversals too. Just like we read that 
prayer of Hannah, the book of Luke begins with a song of Mary. So many similarities. Mary sings that the humble are called blessed and exalted, the proud scattered, the mighty brought low. And in chapter 18, this theme actually just continues. Chapter 18 is in the middle of a section. It's uh, chapters 14 to 19, and the section is filled with different angles at the one truth that God humbles those who exalt themselves, and he exalts those who are humble. In chapter 18, Jesus tells this truth in the form of a parable. Parables are stories. They're grounded in the real world, and they provoke the audience on a spiritual or a moral point. This is a parable of contrast. There's two people in the parable. There's a Pharisee and a tax collector. You probably couldn't find two more different people in the first century. In the middle of the parable, there's two prayers. And at the end, Jesus gives two verdicts. One is justified. The other is judged. This is a parable about pride and humility. And at the end, we find it's also about eternity. Read along as I read Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we hear your word, we ask for your help. We don't trust our own ability to understand your word. We know that without the Spirit opening our eyes, we cannot see our need for Christ. We are spiritually blind. We're prone to rely on our own righteousness. Our hearts are so often hard, and our ears are so often shut. We pray, Lord, would you intervene now and meet us. Have mercy on us, Lord. Help us see the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Are you the Pharisee or are you the tax collector? After reading this parable, Jesus wants us to identify with one of these two people. Now, of course, we all want to identify with the man who went home justified. And the good news is that all of us can do that. 
There's just two things we need to do first. Here's the main idea of this sermon. God justifies those who confess their sin and cry for mercy. God justifies those who confess their sin and cry for mercy. Friends, I have four points if it's helpful for you to follow along. The first one is the setting. That's in verses 9 and 10. Then we'll look at a self-righteous prayer, verses 11 and 12. Then a sinner's prayer in verse 13. And lastly, we'll look at the verdict in verse 14. So first the setting. Look at verse 9. Who did Jesus gather around for story time? Luke gives us two important details. First, Jesus says, there's some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They thought highly of themselves. Now, there's, of course, nothing wrong with trusting in yourself for something. I trusted that I was able to drive to church today. By God's grace, that's what happened. Uh, Six years ago, I trusted that my wife uh, would say yes when I asked her to marry her. And I was a little nervous, but she did say yes, and it, it worked out. But look at what these people trusted in themselves about in verse 9. Luke says they trusted that they were righteous. And of course, we know that's a problem. If you ask these people, why should God let you into heaven? Their hands would be full of good works to bring before God. Well, uh, first, I'm a good person, and I'm a good husband. And I give to the poor. I treat my family well. I don't steal or kill or commit adultery. These people were pleased with their performance. They imagined their lives as a scale. The good things on one side. The bad on the other. And in their minds, the good outweighed the bad. There was a man just like this. His name was Leo Tolstoy. If you've read War and Peace or Anna Karenina, you know his name. Tolstoy once wrote... I am a remarkable man, both as regards capacity and eagerness to work. I have not yet met a single man who was morally as good as I. Tolstoy was full of himself. Jesus, it seems, was talking to the Tolstoys of the world. Luke tells us how they thought about themselves. He also tells us how they treated others. Look back at verse 9. He says they treated others with contempt. They were those who were always looking down their noses at other people. They played the comparison game, and they were always winning. Their problem was cyclical, if you can see. They thought highly of themselves, so they judged others who didn't meet their own standards. The worse others were in their eyes, the better they looked to themselves. Jesus' parable was for the prideful. It was for the self-righteous. I wonder if you know anyone like that. Pride is difficult to discern, isn't it? You can look in the mirror, as many of us do after you eat a meal, and check if there's something in your teeth. If there's something there, you'll probably see it. But you can't look in a mirror and see pride. What's interesting in this parable, though, is that Jesus tells us you can look at your prayer life. In verse 10, Jesus gives the setting of the parable. There's two men. They go into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now, as we think about these two people, 
before we get to their prayers. Pharisees, it's important to know, were the religious party in the first century. They were known for their strict obedience to the Mosaic law, but along with that, they were also known for their strict obedience to oral laws. These were traditions of the Jews. So for a first century Jew hearing this story, they're thinking, well, the Pharisees, those are the good guys. Then we have the tax collector. Now, it's, it's funny because I think universally, across all time, most people don't like tax collectors. But particularly in the first century, people really did not like them. They were Jews, but they were also the scum of society. They collected taxes for Rome, which was the oppressive government occupying Israel. They also extorted their fellow Jews so that they could get rich. If you think today, tax collectors were like the cultural equivalent of a drug dealer. Somebody who preys on the vulnerable, making a living off of living in crime. So the scene set. That's the setting. We have the good guy. We have the bad guy. They're in the temple. They're going to pray. And that's really when this parable starts to provoke. Look at verses 11 and 12. Here we see a self-righteous prayer. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. It's the last day of the year. You're probably thinking about New Year's resolutions. One of them might be to pray more. That's been on my list often. Jesus actually shows us here that the fact that we pray doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing well spiritually. In fact, our prayers can actually be an insight into the idols of our hearts. And if we look deeply into the Pharisees' prayer, we're going to see patterns of self-centeredness and patterns of self-righteousness. If you look back at that prayer, look at all the times he mentions himself. Verse 11, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Five times in this short little prayer, he's talking about himself. The man is self-absorbed. Now, he starts with thanksgiving. The prayer really shifts into a prayer of praise. Ironically, it's a prayer of praise of himself to God. He's tooting his own horn. He's amazed at how amazing he is. Now, Pastor Mark just led us in the pastoral prayer moments ago. Imagine if Pastor Mark got up here and prayed that prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like these sinners in this room, especially that guy over there. I fasted twice this week. I am a generous man. Amen we would be appalled. It would sound ridiculous. We would wonder, is he joking? Does he really mean that? It seems like we could never do this. But then we examine our own prayer lives. Who do you primarily pray for? What do you pray for? Your work? Your financial needs? Your family? Your friends? We have to ask, who is this all about? Now, of course, it's not wrong to pray for these things. But could it be 
that your prayer list is just you petitioning God on behalf of your idols. Now, as Christians, we remember the gospel reorients our whole universe. Eventually, it gets to our prayer list too. We all, by nature, worship ourselves. We're the center of our own universe. But when we believe the gospel, when our eyes are open to the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ, we cry out, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And now we think about our prayer lists. They can be endlessly creative. Of course, we praise not ourselves when we pray. We praise God. And we pray not only for ourselves, but for other church members. We pray for other churches, even churches not in our city. We pray for our neighbors and our coworkers, non-Christians, unreached people groups, natural disasters, wars. In fact, in many ways, the pastoral prayer we just heard was a model to us of what things we should be praying for throughout our week. Through Christ, our self-centeredness is transformed into God-centeredness. And it's as we love God more that we look to our neighbors and we pray for them. The Pharisees' prayer was not a model prayer. It was a self-centered prayer. It was also a self-righteous prayer. Now, his self-righteousness was no secret. We see it in how he looked down on others. We see it in how he thought highly of himself. Just listen to him pray. I thank you that I'm not like other men. The Pharisee saw the sins of his neighbor. They didn't lead him to feel pity. They led him to feel proud. His prayer reveals that though he claimed to love God, he really didn't think he needed God at all. And as he looked down on others, he grew taller and taller in his own eyes. He was obsessed with the things he'd done. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. And sadly, that's the end of what is difficult to even call a prayer. Filled with self-centeredness. Filled with self-righteousness. We wonder, was the Pharisee aware of his self-righteousness? Did he know? And we have to ask ourselves, are we aware of our own self-righteousness? Self-righteousness, friends, is a subtle and a dangerous sin. It's subtle because... When we think highly of ourselves, we usually think we have just grounds for the opinions that we have of ourselves. And most of us don't advertise our self-righteousness to other people. Now, self-righteousness and true righteousness, they're like two trees. From a distance, you can look at them and they look exactly the same. You discern the difference. You see it when you get close and start to inspect the fruit. Do you feel like you've arrived in the Christian life? Do you get frustrated with other immature Christians for their lack of progress in grace? Do you often find yourself speaking of other people's sins? Now I know for myself, when I am laboring on my own strength, and I'm actually finding myself successful, I tend to judge other Christians and think, well, if everyone was just more like me, 
then if they just did the things that I did, wouldn't they just be better? It'd be better for them. Looking down on others is a fruit of self-righteousness. Now, ironically, when I'm laboring in my own strength and I fall flat on my face, I tend towards despair. I think I am the worst Christian. I I can't do anything right. I'm a failure. And there we see that self-righteousness shifts our gaze from Christ And we start thinking about our performance. So when we despair by not measuring up, it's not righteousness and it's not humility. It's false humility, just another fruit of self-righteousness. Now, friends, self-righteousness is also dangerous because it is the ultimate expression of salvation by works. It's a declaration to God that you don't need God. You have a righteousness of your own that you can trust in. And how can you be saved by God if you think you can save yourself? There is an antidote to self-righteousness by God's grace. It's a righteousness from outside ourselves. A righteousness that only God can give. It's here we see that this parable, it's not just about prayer. And it's not just about pride and humility. It's really a parable about justification. And self-righteousness can never justify us before God. So Christians, let me ask you, do you believe deep in your heart that the gospel is all you have? Strip away your job. Strip away your bank account, your education, your accomplishments, how many times you've read the Bible, how many people you've shared the gospel with, how many people you read the Bible with, none of that on its own can justify you before God. But Jesus can. And the more you understand the gospel, the more you'll simply see that you're a sinner who needs Jesus just like everybody else. And the more you'll understand how merciful God is that He would actually give you His only Son Jesus. The Pharisee didn't understand that his greatest problem was not the sinners out there, but the sinner right here himself. In verse 13, we're surprised then to hear how refreshing the sinner's prayer is. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I love when I hear a new Christian pray. It's like they've not learned all the Christian language yet. You know, they don't know the right things to pray. They just pray genuinely from their own heart. In many ways, that's what we get in this tax collector's prayer. Notice where he stands. The the Pharisee stood by himself, The tax collector stood far off. Notice his downward gaze. This is a man who is ashamed of his life and ashamed of his sin. You can hear him beating his breast. Jesus wants us to notice there is a deep sense of unworthiness this man feels even just walking into the temple. He doesn't pray a long prayer. He really only has one thing to ask. This man needs mercy. The Pharisee looked down on others. 
The tax collector looked down on himself. He's not in the temple comparing himself to who's in the room. He didn't come to the temple to prove himself to everybody else. He came for pardon. The Pharisee, if we look back at his prayer, he asked for nothing. The tax collector cried for mercy. Notice he doesn't cry for help. He doesn't say, I need to be better. He knows that the thing he needs most is mercy. And here we see the reversal happening. It seems that the man, the Pharisee, the man who's supposed to know God, didn't know God half as well as the man who's supposed to be the farthest from God. The tax collector knew one thing about God at least. He knew that God was merciful, especially to miserable sinners like him. One theologian called mercy God's goodness when shown to those in misery. Now, the tax collector was a miserable sinner. Yet, he turned to the God who he thought would even be good to him. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I wonder why you came to church today. Perhaps your sin has made you miserable. If you're miserable, let me encourage you. Go to the God who is merciful. He still answers sinners when they cry to Him for mercy. We've heard the self-righteous prayer. We've heard the sinner's prayer. The last point we'll consider this afternoon is the verdict. In verse 14, story time is over. Remember who Jesus was talking to. It's those who thought highly of themselves and looked down on others. Jesus emphatically gives them the point of the parable. Look at verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now in this last verse, verse 14, Jesus really answers two questions for us. The first one he answers was for the people there. Who was justified? Who was justified? Two people went to the temple to pray. One went home justified. Who was it? It's the tax collector. It's not the Pharisee. Only one of them was made right with God. And here we see again the surprising reversal taking place before our eyes. And we learn that our perceptions of spirituality are so often skewed from what Jesus's are. His kingdom is a paradox. Christians, the model for us in this passage is not the man who appeared righteous. It's the sinner. We're called not to take pride in what we've done, but to be honest about who we are. Jesus teaches us that humility and honesty, these are the true marks of a Christian. One pastor put it this way, each of us has a choice. We can be honest about our sin or we can appear impressive, but friends, we can't be both. Honesty begins at the cross with that statement, none of us is righteous, no, not one. The worst thing about you that could possibly be said was said on the cross. The cross declares, yes, we do deserve God's wrath. 
But because of Jesus Christ, we instead receive God's mercy. The cross says that we deserve eternal death. That's our destiny. But because of Jesus' resurrection, we receive instead eternal life. So Christians don't need to appear strong or righteous to have worth because Christians have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So friends, we can be honest. We don't have to keep pretending. Honesty means that we confess with our lips that we are great sinners. Honesty means we confess specific sins to one another. It means we as a church confess our sins corporately to God in prayer. And as we practice this honesty, we only find that God's goodness is shown to us more and more and more. Humility also begins at the cross. Our problems were so great, we needed a resurrection. How can we be prideful as we live in the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ? Humility means acknowledging that Jesus is the judge, not us. It means that we don't look down on others. Instead, we actually identify with them. Friends, think about what this means for your marriage. Husbands and wives, think about how is pride currently poisoning your marriage? How could your humility actually bring refreshment to your marriage? If you are in a workplace, think about how pride has turned you into a difficult person to work with. How could humility in your workplace bring reconciliation with your colleagues? This parable is a reminder to all of us that all we are is solely by the mercy of God. So instead of measuring ourselves against the failures of our friends, we fix our gaze on God. We know that none of us could stand in His presence. None of us has any boast before Him except Jesus Christ. The tax collector was justified Ironically, the tax collector now serves as a model to us. But that second question Jesus answers in verse 14 is actually a question for all of us in this room. Who will be justified? Jesus wants us to both look back to the tax collector and forwards to the future. He ends with a universal truth. It applies to every single person in this room. It doesn't matter where you're from. It applies to every single person on the planet. And it's this. It's that those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We've seen in this parable, it's about pride and humility. But ultimately, it's about eternity. Who will be justified? Jesus wants each of us to look beyond December 31st, 2021. He wants us to even look past 2022 to that day when we will stand before him and Jesus will judge the living and the dead. Friend, have you prepared for that day? Do you think about that day when Christ comes again? History will be completed 
and we will all give an account. His judgment will be perfect. His judgment will be final. If you've exalted yourself in this life, if you've gotten ahead by putting others down, you'll be judged. If you've trusted in your own good works for justification, you'll be banished to eternal misery. Friend, if that's you, that day has not come yet. It's still in the future as of right now. If you're not a Christian, let me speak to you. The gospel is not for those who have their lives together. That's what this parable teaches us. It's for those who have messed up their lives beyond repair, who have no hope other than the mercy of God. So if that's you, if you feel the misery of your sin, if you see the emptiness of your self-righteousness, friend, you need a salvation from outside yourself. You will never be enough. But Jesus is enough for you. So friend, make this tax collector's prayer your prayer. You have a choice. You can suffer in hell forever or Christ himself can suffer for you. Friend, confess your sin. Cry out to God for mercy. Christians, as we consider this parable, we're reminded we're not those who have our lives together either. We're those who have made shipwrecks of our lives. And yet, and still, God is merciful to us. If you find yourself in the future looking down on others, and you will, And if you find yourself trusting in your own righteousness, and that will happen too, remember how you've been justified, not because of works done by you in righteousness, but because of God's own mercy. And also remember that day when you stand before Jesus Christ. What will you bring to Him? Nothing. Just the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That day will be a day of great reversals. A couple years ago, Hannah and I, uh, we picked the songs that we want played at our funeral. That might sound weird to you, I don't know. We had both just read a book on Ecclesiastes called Living Life Backward, and we realized, for both of us, how little we think about death and how little death today shapes how we live. The song that I picked was uh, called Rock of Ages. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. In many ways, in so many ways, it reminds me of this parable. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Nothing in my hand I bring Simply to the cross I cling. And that last verse. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown, and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Friends, that day of great reversal is coming soon. 
Let's humble ourselves today, and on that day we will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your mercy. We're thankful for Christ's righteousness. And thank you, Lord, for humbling us, for not leaving us in our stubborn pride, for not leaving us to hardened hearts. You are so kind to humble us sinners and exalt us one day with Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friend, if your sins are many, the good news of the gospel is that His mercy is more. Let's stand and sing to Christ.